0: This is your host, Casey Deshock. Alaska Conversations is supported by a community of Alaskans dedicated to our state. If you'd like to view more information about the show, you can find us at alaskaconversations.com. There you'll be able to find this podcast as well as our show archive. The website is another place to find information and data concerning the topics we discuss, events, upcoming guests, and more about Alaska Conversations. If you have a question, comment, topic recommendation, or a suggested guest, you can email contact at Conversations.com. This is episode eight. Welcome to Alaska Conversations. My guest today is Bryce Wrigley and he is the owner and CEO of the Alaska Flower Company. Bryce has been involved in Alaska agriculture for about 40 years and has multiple generations operating the family farm near Delta Junction. Bryce, welcome to Alaska Conversations.
1: Thank you, Casey. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: The Alaska Flour Company operates the only commercial flour mill in the state, so you found a way to grow your business from a wholesale type of business to at least some of your product you're doing value-added business or or creating value with your product. What type of products does the Alaska flower company produce and what percentages are value added?
1: Well, um, as far as Alaska flower company, we value out pretty much all of the products that we, that we grow for the flower. mill. we raise the products on our farm, family farm here in Delta. And uh, in 2011, we started Alaska flower company and our, goal in doing that was to increase or enhance food security for Alaskans. Um, and so we started milling uh, the flour, or excuse me, the barley, into flour products. So we don't have any wheat. Uh, all of our products were made 100% with barley. Uh, which is a um, reflection of the fact that, you know, in, in our location, it's not wheat is not a reliable crop. So barley is a reliable crop. It's going to be something for food security than naturally you, you need to gear a flour into <laughs> something that that you can uh, you can grow and that, that is barley. Um, and so we make our barley into that we grow on the farm. We make it into flour which we use to make we sell flour but we also make uh, pancake mixes and cereal or excuse me uh, brownie mixes and uh, uh, cookie mixes and uh, I was looking for new mixes and Uh, Then uh, we also make uh, cream of barley cereal. We make uh, couscous and we started making some um, seasoned couscous mixes. So we use couscous instead of rice. Uh, Whole grain, 100% whole grain. uh, Barley is high in beta-glucans. It's a low glycemic index food. Really, really ideal food for people with diabetes or pre-diabetes. We didn't know any of this stuff when we first started, but Talking with some of the doctors who have contacted us about uh, sourcing it for their patients, uh, we learned a lot and um, and have become quite um, quite an advocate for using the barley in your diet uh, in in those situations, particularly. So that's kind of where we started our, from, as far as where we are right now in terms of our uh, our value added. Pretty much all of the stuff that goes through the mill is value added. We do raise other type of grain, other type of barley that is for animal feed. But um, uh, the barley that we use for people food is actually a hull of barley that was developed by the University of Alaska Fairbanks.
0: So it's it's, it's its own special strain of barley designed for Alaska, or is it more widespread than that?
1: Um, yes, it was actually designed for Alaska. Um, I'm not sure how long they, they worked on it, but, uh, there are two hullus barley varieties that are, uh, that were developed in Alaska and, uh, and sunshine was, was the most recent. We like the sunshine. The other one is, uh, is cool. We like the sunshine because it's a little lighter kernel and so the flower is not quite as dark. Um, thing about barley is, is it's, uh, it's it's high in fiber. It's got two and a half times the fiber of wheat, and I already mentioned the beta glucans and uh, and the benefit that that provides. But uh, the high the high fiber is a complex carbohydrate, and so it helps regulate how fast your body converts that starch to sugar. So, and that, that's the benefit that it is for people with diabetes is is that it's uh, it doesn't convert in a rush or in a, in a big that raises your blood sugar so that, that's why the people like that
0: and when you're when you're looking at selling your your barley your your human products for human consumption are you primarily doing that person to person in a market or, or do you see most of your sales at alaskaflowercompany.com or, or your website one of those or is it about 50 50
1: most of it now we started out with with pretty much direct sales and, uh, most of it now is actually going to a wholesale market. So we, we sell to all of the Safeway stores, pretty much all the Safeway stores in Alaska. We sell to, uh, the Three Bear stores. And there are a number of other, not chain stores, but, but health, health oriented stores, uh, in Juneau and, uh, Sitka, um, Anchorage, uh, Natural Pantries is one popular one in, in Anchorage. Then on the Kenai Peninsula, Zavier Moore store there that is uh, carrying our products, and we're we're always trying to grow. In fact, we're, we're working right now with Costco uh, to get into Fairbanks, and uh, and then we are have been informed that that we we'll be should be expecting a call from Fred Meyer. So uh, we're continually trying to grow that market.
0: So. Somebody can find you in, in local stores. Just make sure that you're looking in the right aisle. Look for Alaska Flower Company. You mentioned food security. It's something that you emphasize a lot on your website. You talk about it a lot in other media engagements that you had. What is food security to you or, or when you're explaining it to, to somebody who's never heard the word food security? What does that mean to you?
1: Well, to us, it means um, it, it means increasing or enhancing our ability in Alaska to grow some of our own food. I realize we're not going to be growing grapes, oranges, and stuff, to, uh, you know, anytime soon. But, um, but I think it's important that Alaskans have a source of locally grown food that provides a balanced diet. And so when you, when you look at that balanced diet, you've got to include grains and meat and vegetables and, and fruits in order to get the right variety to to keep your systems functioning right, and so we provide we provide that grain, and that's one of the reasons we provide a bunch of value-added value-added products. You know, for example, rather than just plain couscous, I mentioned we also make seasoned couscous. So people, that that's kind of the way a lot of people cook now. They they don't they don't really cook from scratch so much. They're both parents are working usually, and and uh, so they come home. Everybody's tired. Everyone got homework and stuff like that so you just want to put something in the in the pan and be able to cook it up and, and have dinner ready to go in 15 minutes and so that's that's what we can do uh the same with the pancakes we, we made flour for several years and people certainly could make pancakes with it but we made mixes pancake mixes uh so that it would facilitate that and, and in our developing these mixes and these recipes we're try to be really conscious of of, you know how much sugar we put in the the, thing, the recipes that, that we were putting in, so they're 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 pretty good, healthy as well as as good tasting. And that was the other thing we we wanted to make sure that that our products didn't taste like they were really off a store shelf, but rather that they they tasted like you made it from home. Brownie mix, for example, which I'll, I'll tell you right now is is not a brownie mix that you would want to give somebody with with diabetes. It's got it's got okay. sugar in it, but but man, are fantastic! But we worked for a long time on the brownie mix to make sure that it didn't taste like it was made out of a store mix. And so now, when you cook it up, it tastes like you made it up from scratch, and, um, and it's really, really good. Well, so it's gotta be some that, of the, that's always been part of our goal, you know.
0: It's got to be some of the best best working hours that you've ever put in. Constantly bringing brownies out of the out of the oven or whatever to make sure that the mix is just right. That I would yeah. I would be really yeah. interested in that time.
1: Yeah, there's never, never a shortage of test, taste testers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so let me look at the history of the Alaska Flower Company because one of the things that's interesting is kind of how agriculture more broadly has – how we look at it in Alaska because we have a lot of raw resource, but it's hard to convert it. So I imagine when I look at the dates, when I see farm started 1983, I pretty much associate the beginnings of the Alaska Flower Company as being part of the Delta barley project. Is that correct? And what, and if it was, what was it that made Delta an attractive investment for you in the beginning?
1: Yeah. So I, I was a third generation in my family coming into farming. I lived in Southern Idaho and uh, my ancestors always farmed probably since Adam was a baby. But, uh, (laughs) but when, but, but I was the third generation coming into our, our family corporation and this really wasn't any place around for us to expand uh, for my family to expand for, for that third generation It was me my cousins and, and uh, so we we looked at increasing herds uh, we raised sheep in Idaho among other things and we bought some more sheep but everybody else in the area uh, had the same situation we did. Their, their kids and grandkids were coming into, they were coming home from school and getting into the family farm, and so everybody was looking for ground, and there just really wasn't any more ground that 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 you could afford. And about that time, this was 1982. I I read an article in Successful Farming about the barley project, and um, and it's one of those things. Sometimes you read something or hear something, and you just it, it settles in your mind. You can't get it out, and that's exactly what happened to me. I thought about that all the rest of that harvest season in 1982, we started lambing in January of 83. I thought about it all during lambing season. And uh, by uh, May, end of May, we had planted our crops, everything was in the ground ready to go. And I finally turned to my dad and I said, you know, I'm gonna have to go up to Alaska to see what this looks like. Uh, I can't get it out of my mind. And so I hopped in my little Toyota pickup and me and my dad drove straight through, took 60 hours to get up here from Idaho. We, uh, we stayed a week looking around, talking to farmers, talking to some state people, and you know, the Barley Project had, had just been going. In fact, we pulled onto a farm that had just been planted with its first crop, and coincidentally that wound up being the farm that we now own. It was owned by somebody else at that time, but uh, so we were here fairly early in the Barley Project, but we didn't do any of the clearing. The clearing had already been done, and so anyway, we stayed for a week and talked about it. and. Drove back home, back to Idaho, and, of course, we're working on notes and talking and stuff like that, and finally decided we'd we'd move up. So we stayed in Idaho and helped get the crop out, and then in uh, November, actually late late October, we finished digging sugar beets. So I pulled the beet puller up, and I said, you guys are going to have to clean this up because I've got to get out of here. Um, it's going to be winter in Alaska, and, and we came up. Uh, we got here November eleventh.
0: Oh yeah, you were right in Nineteen
1: eighty three.
0: You were way in the winter already. I'm sure. Nineteen eighty three. Oh
1: yeah. Well, and the reason, uh, because you know the banks wouldn't loan money on agriculture, and so the only option we really knew about that we could get financing for putting in a crop was um, with the agriculture revolving loan fund with the state, which had to be a resident. And uh, we didn't have jobs, so we got uh, we. But we, we bought a couple of chainsaws, bought a trailer, brought it up behind my pickup, and uh, I had a bigger pickup than Toyota too. So <laughs> we brought it up, and we cut firewood for the first winter, and uh, we and that's why we came up in November because we knew that we could cut firewood, and there would be a market for that. And so we cut firewood that first year, uh, established residency, um, put in a loan. And uh, then we made arrangements with a, a local farmer here to use some of his ground and some of his equipment in exchange for a share of the crop. And then he ultimately wound up buying uh, pretty much most of, the rest, most of the rest of our crop for his hay or for, uh, yeah, to raise hay for his cattle. And that was kind of what started this. Uh, we kicked around different things. We, we planted beets for, or excuse me, uh, potatoes for a couple of years. Uh, we planted uh, broccoli a year. We did a bunch of custom work, hay hauling and straw hauling. And finally, we got an opportunity. And the reason we, we did that is because there was a lot, of, a lot of grain being grown, you know, and not a lot of places for it to go. So we tried different things. And finally, we, we settled on about 80 acres, um, rented some from somebody else and put in 80 acres of, of barley, which is really what we came up here for and uh, couldn't sell it. Um, this wasn't a market for it, and so we got into pigs. We bought some pigs and raised them up and spread them, and started raising pigs. We raised pigs for about ten years, and we would feed the barley to the pigs and then sell the pigs. That was how we supplemented our farming habit. Um, and we we were in the pig business until about 1999, and the price of pigs. I don't know if you recall back then you maybe too young for that
0: a little <laughs> yeah. bit too they, young they went
1: you know. they went really really bad i mean they were down in america they were selling them for six bucks or else they were knocking them in the head and burying them because they just weren't worth anything it was cheaper to to, to lose them than it was to feed them and so uh we saw that starting to happen we realized that we uh, that that was going to impact our ability to stay in business too up here and fortunately for us Uh, By that time, a lot of people, by the late 90s, a lot of people had quit raising barley and put it into hay or something else. And so there was an opening market starting to grow there. And so as we transitioned out of pigs, stopped feeding pigs, then then we um, uh, started selling the barley. And so within six months, we had sold all of our pigs that we still had and and started selling the barley. And that's what we were doing from then on until from 2000 on until 2011 when uh, we started the flour mill. And what really started us on the flour mill was, was really a food security issue. Um, I remember 2005 watching Hurricane Katrina on the news and I was just so, I don't know, something really impacted me there when the announcer said that, helicopter was flying around the roof and there were some people on top of the roof of one of those buildings down in New Orleans. And the announcer said somebody had shot his neighbor first for their food. And that, for some reason, that just really hit me hard. And I thought, man, what would happen if something like that happened up here? Another thing that amazed me was then in New Orleans, it was just kind of the crossroads. Of, I mean, you realize how much food goes out of America and through America, through New Orleans. And there's highways going right through there. That's kind of the heartland of America. And and it took two weeks for the United States government to get food into those people. And I thought, wow, how long would it take for, for them to get food up here? So all of this kind of started rolling around in my mind, it kinda of gelled into an idea that, that we're already raising grain. What if we what if we raised a different type of grains for people food and started a flour mill? And so it took six years for us to kind of work through that plan and and I tried to get other people to do it, and they didn't want to. And so, finally, we decided in 2011 to do that. And uh, and so, December of 2011, we started construction. 2011, December of 2011, we started uh, our first the, the mill up and milled our first our first uh, flour.
0: Well, let me go.
1: back But that was that was the that was the impetus of all of it was do something about food security for Alaska.
0: So. I'm going to touch on the food security here in a second again, but let me go back to uh, you brought up the uh, agricultural revolving loan fund. And let me just explain this one. You tell me where I'm wrong on this. But um, a lot of people have don't understand the challenges that agriculture doesn't matter if if you're in America or you're up here or, you know, especially in Alaska, financial institutions Aren't really set up that they understand when somebody's putting asking for money for capital improvements for a building or for equipment that makes sense, but people don't understand the cost that is incurred by purchasing your seed or your fertilizer or whatever you're using in any given year. So many states, especially agriculture states, have loan programs oftentimes supported by the state that give basically a one, sometimes it may be two year, but generally a one year loan, which allows a farmer to make an investment in some form of new crop or continued crop. And then that's paid off at the end of the year after the harvest, something like that.
1: Yeah, that's right. And so that's an operating loan. So yeah, you get a loan every year to buy your fertilizer and seed, and your, pay your fuel and labor and whatever else you need to, to pay or to supplement what income you, you do have from the farm to, to pay for those large ticket items that come along, you know, occasionally during the year. And so that's an operating loan. Uh, one of the things that really surprised me is coming from Idaho, an agriculture state, was that it, there was really not a problem finding money to buy land, for example, to buy a farm. But Alaska just didn't have that. I mean, the banks would loan money on fishing boats. And I never could understand why they wouldn't loan money on a farm because the fishing boats could go out and sink, but the <laughs> farm was always going to be there. I never could figure that out. I still haven't. After forty years, I still haven't figured that out. But in any event, that was that was our dilemma. That was why we needed to establish residency, and then that, and why we borrowed with uh, with ARLA. There are a couple of other loaning programs that that can can be used for uh, agriculture. At the time, we didn't know about them. One was FSA, which is a federal program; it's quite cumbersome to get into. The other is uh, ARC, Agricultural Alaska Rural Rehabilitation Corporation, which was actually organized the form back when the colonists come up to came up to uh, Palmer. So there was a uh, that was the, the loaning agency for those colonists, and it's been privatized now, um, but it's also based in. Palmer, but that's also a source of farming revenue now if somebody is, is looking for a, you know, a place to do that. But for us, one we knew about was the state of Alaska's ARLF, the Agribaldum Loan Fund. And, and so that's who we went with, and, and that's what we needed to establish residency for.
0: And in the, so in the beginning here, you're, you're in the Barley Project. You talk about selling timber. I believe early on, some people, maybe if they were the first ones in doing the auctioning, purchasing the land at auction. There may have been a restriction on selling timber. I'm not sure if there was a restriction on selling timber, but it's something um, sometimes you can't sell the resources. If we were to sell land today, you can't sell the resources until your loans paid off, which is something that inhibits new farmers from getting into, into the industry. But you also had the state really, really pursuing, establishing the barley market as far as an outlet for for the product, and that also never really came to fruition. So you had some people that went all in on the barley, but there wasn't necessary. They kind of got the crop ahead of the, the market early on, and you guys were able to weather that through through slow development. It sounds like early on, or, or maybe it was something else, but that was a, a challenge through the 1980s and weather challenge as well in the, in that early time where there were some very early snows, very early freezes shortly after the barley project really got off and the first crop should have been hitting the market. So that was, that was a challenge early on.
1: Yep. Yep. There, you know, there's, and there's challenges no matter where farming occurs. Gosh, I remember in Idaho uh, hail was a, a constant threat in the summertime. Uh, some places it's tornadoes or flooding uh, in Alaska it happened in a pretty short season where you get an early snow or, or a late frost or something like that. And so there are there are challenges. And that's kind of what is, one of the things that I I think is another challenge about uh, farming in Alaska is that you know, most of the most of America was was settled by farmers and ranchers. And as as, um, as the society grew up around those farms and ranches and towns were built and, and became cities and, and infrastructure was there and the state governments uh, came into being and and legislators uh, legislatures were formed in, in different programs everything really understood the risks associated with farming that that's what every, everything grew up around but in Alaska that didn't happen and so I sometimes call that an ag culture uh, we didn't really ever develop an ag culture and so as as the barley project got going and snow happened then people kind of, some some people in government threw up their hands and said, ah, I knew it couldn't happen. Right, I right. told you, you can't raise that kind of stuff in Alaska. So, so there wasn't this understanding that, yeah, sometimes Mother Nature doesn't play fair. In America, that would have just been yeah, par for the course. Well, we'll just, next year will be different, and that's the way most farmers are. You have a bad year. You, I don't know how you can be a farmer and be a pessimist. but uh, you have a bad year, you always look forward for the next year. And so you, you try and make those plans and 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 you always know that next year is going to be better, but that doesn't that doesn't happen unless you have an ag culture. So so I think that's an important distinction for Alaska as we as a state we didn't develop that, and and so we we the the, the people decision makers, if you will, that were encouraging agriculture and were supporting this in the beginning. Yeah, as soon as a couple of things happened, uh, bad bad weather things like that then they kind of threw up their hands and and abandoned the idea the only ones that stuck with it were for the most part were the farmers that that were committed and uh, they knew that it would get better and and it has um so yeah that's that's one of the things that um that you deal with 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 alaska and we're pretty young i mean we talked about the colonists coming up here in the 30s but uh that's the, the this area here has only been raising grain for 35 years or so. So
0: yeah, it's extreme. It's extremely new. And you, you talk about the egg culture, if you will, Alaska. You were talking food security as well. If you go back to those colonist days, most of the most of the numbers that I see is Alaska produced 80 percent of what it consumed here in state. And today, we are in the you know three or four percent number. I mean, it's significantly dropped with the yeah with the rise of population and people moving out of, of the farming industry, the ranching industry. So we do not consume much of what we produce here. And so you look at some of these other places that have a lot of production. You see what happens there during a natural disaster. You have a ferry or road cut off here. It's going to take a significant amount of money, time to get resources in here. And I think we only have a few days on the shelf at any given
1: time. Yeah, that's right. You know, we used to, when when I was growing up, uh, if you went into the grocery store and something wasn't on the shelf, you went back and you asked somebody and they went back in the back of the warehouse back there and they brought it back out and they filled the shelf up again. But uh, as as logistics developed and improved, they, they've they gone to this just-in-time delivery where they, they, they order computer-generated and, and transportation and logistics being what it is. They know that, that by ordering on this date, they can receive it pretty much by this date. And so these regular shipments are coming in. And when that happened, there, there didn't seem to be much of a need for a warehouse space in the, in the store anymore. So what the stores did is they expanded and, and made more shopping area. And now if you go back in the store, all you got is generally an, an aisle or a, an, an alleyway there that they can receive stuff off the truck while they, while they take it in to the, uh, to the shelves and restock every night. Um, and because they're getting a the truck every day or two, then, then there's there's no need to warehouse that so the end result is that when there's a disruption in that transportation system then there's only what's on the shelf and uh, I remember a number of things, it seems like this happens all the time I remember in 80 let's see 1989 January of 1989 got really cold that year um, and uh, and the port of Anchorage the barge came up. Eighty percent of our stuff probably came up on the barge. which come up to Anchorage and couldn't dock because the ice is in the harbor. And so it turned around goes back and meets the next barge. So one barge a week was coming up. They, it passes the next barge coming up. Well, but during that period of time, man, the store shelves were almost empty. It, it, and, you know, eventually the weather broke and the barge got in there. But, but for that period of time, they couldn't do that. Uh, 2012, the road washed out down at uh, uh, Whitehorse. So for four days, the trucks were stopped down there, couldn't get through. And it was amazing, uh, that, that the failure of those trucks to get through for those three or four days impacted the store shelves in Fairbanks. I remember seeing a a newscast, uh, channel 13, I think it was in Fairbanks. And, and so they were talking with the store manager at at the store and, uh, and he said, yeah, we're just fronting the shelves right now. And then they do that so that people think that everything is okay. Well, you know what happens when an emergency is known about? Everybody rushes to the store and buys everything they can, and, 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 uh, and it kind of becomes a, a big concern. Well, by fronting the store shelves, what that means, you, you pull everything that's left and you kind of line it up along the front so it looks like the store shelves are full. But if you move one or two items <laughs> the store shelves are empty behind it, you might have a whole line of something. It might not be what you want, but it looks like the shelves are full. So it kind of keeps people's concerns damped down a little bit. And you can handle that for a, for a few days. But in reality, yeah, you get about, for some products, you got a, a couple, well, three days or so, and and then they run out. Uh, some other things will last longer, you know, less less in demand or something. Our goal was just to provide not an alternative so much, but another Source of food—one that was closer than eighteen hundred miles away—for uh, those emergency situations. Uh, it was kind of interesting. Uh, I mean, it, for us, it was significant. For me, it was significant. It, was, it didn't amount to Philippines in reality, but you know, this last year they had the earthquake down in Anchorage,
0: yep, and absolutely. the
1: very day that earthquake happened that happened in the morning—the very day that that earthquake happened, we shipped out four pallets of of food from here to Anchorage to the stores in Anchorage. Now, granted that that four pallets is not even that's not gonna amount to anything. But but the fact that we, we already had that scheduled and it went from here there to there, for me that was a significant thing. And mm-hmm. and as we grow, you know, one day it'll be four hundred pallets that go to Anchorage. And if that happens during an emergency, if that's available during an emergency, look how much better we are off huh, than, than if we didn't have that. No, and so it. that doesn't matter if it's grain products or if it's or if it's meat or vegetables or whatever. So, so, you know, I think these are things we can do, but we, we need to work together on it. And that, that working together, you know, that, that involves the farmers growing it. It involves uh, the, the grocery stores because that's where people shop. People don't shop by going to the farmer and to his, um, the bulk of the people don't shop by going to the farmer and, and getting it off his farm stand or at his farm. Most of them go to the store and shop. So you've got to get your your local products into the store. So it takes a willingness on the part of the store shell, as the store managers, to carry those local products so that they're already where they need to be when the people need them. And then just as part of commerce, you're selling this stuff just right alongside with your Wheaties and your Cheerios and everything else that's coming up from America. Uh, And then when the Cheerios and the Wheaties run out, then you still have... You're already in the store. See? You're already in that system, and it's available when, when people are coming in to buy their groceries. And I think that that's, that's an amazing – will have an amazing effect on how well the population responds in an emergency. If they know there's going to be food, then there's going to be less concern, less stealing, less violence, less breaking in and stuff like that. because. They know they can still go to the store and buy the food, and that's the biggest thing. People worry about how they're going to feed their families, and so they all of a sudden there's no food there, and and that's what makes people freak out.
0: We'll, we'll see it a little bit with the with the virus right now in in China. I mean, certainly yeah. that's a that's a terrible thing, but some of that is our own our our own hype. So you can see that where, what can happen in a situation yeah. where you have. All right. Here here's a, a disruption in the supply chain and then all of a sudden that turns into a panic and and if if as you're saying people understand that look we have an, a local supply chain everything's going to be okay maybe it stops that panic just a little bit. But I also take yeah. got to take this moment to say eat wild salmon, buy Alaska grown if you could afford it. Those are two things that I think are extremely important for because the consumer drives some of that, you know, the, the consumer is yeah, yeah. an important facet of that, but agriculture in general. And now, the, now this is just talking about agriculture markets and we'll compare here to lower 48 or to anywhere else in the world. Usually agriculture is used as an example of a perfectly competitive market. And what's meant by a perfectly competitive market is a market where you have lots of buyers and sellers, you can sell everything that you want at the market price. The products are relatively uh, uniform, homogenous. And I know that you have a, a unique barley strain, but I'm you know generally barley is barley. There's differences side to side. But when they're looking at a perfectly competitive market, what they're meaning is it's something that people can buy and process in a similar way. You look at all of those things and also low barriers to entry, blah, 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 Alaska even though agriculture needs to really operate in an environment like that, Alaska doesn't really have an outlet. So you could have, if I go to Delta Junction and I, and I go and get a loan and start farming and I have a good year, if I don't have my markets developed, there's not really an outlet for me to sell my product if I haven't developed my market. Now, with the Alaska Flower Company, do you purchase product from other farms or are you just processing your own at this point?
1: Right now, we are only processing our own. Um, but when we started the company, one of our goals was to create new markets. We had three goals when we started the company, and one of them was food security. One was to create new markets for local farmers that, that didn't exist at the time. And, and we want to do that because um, that spreads our risk. If we have a bad crop, uh, we'll need other, other farmers' crops, you know. And so, and and if we have a windstorm on our place, maybe ten miles down the road, that wind doesn't doesn't shatter the grain out. So uh, it's important that that we that we reduce that risk because it, it all kind of works together in in a reliable food security scenario. Um, but we're not there yet. In other words, the market that we have is not large enough yet to go to a farmer and say we'll contract a hundred acres of. Uh, of grain for you or from you now and, and to another farmable contract, another 50 acres from you and stuff like our markets just not big enough there yet. And so what you, what you said a little bit earlier, certainly true um, in a, in a place where you have a lot of people in the market, a lot of high population, then there's enough demand to pretty much suck up what can be, what can be generated. Um, in Alaska, that population is, small enough that, that that percentage of people that is willing to buy Alaska Grown or is dedicated to uh, increasing our food security or that is looking for a healthy food, you know, that that percentage of that population is a certain size. Let, let's say it's 1% or 2%. Well, if you got 700,000 people, 1% or 2% is not very many people. And so it's difficult to get enough people, enough of a market grown that, that you can expand your production capacity, manufacturing capacity. And so in order to accomplish that, what we have done is, is we uh looking at other markets to, to grow capacity so that, so for example, Canada, uh, we're selling in Canada now. Toronto has, wow. I don't know, two or three million people in it. Uh, Montreal has probably about that much to it. I don't know what those numbers are. But, you know, we're, in one city there, we're talking about three times the size of the population of Alaska. So we're still in Montreal and, and uh, Toronto, and Vancouver. Uh, those, those three cities alone expose that uh, this large population. You, you peel out the 1% or 2% that is willing to look for you know, uh, healthy food, Something unique from Alaska, stuff like that. You, you, that percentage still is small, but now you've got a, a large enough population that that percentage equals a lot of num, a lot of people, and then that's what we use to, to grow our manufacturing capacity, our milling capacity, and and our network. And then, so what happens if uh, if you have uh, next year or next month or whatever, you have uh, an emergency, and and it doesn't even have to happen here. You mentioned the the coronavirus. That it, that's nothing to do with Alaska. It's not even anything to do with America. It happened somewhere else. But, but many of the things that will impact our, our um, food security don't happen here. It's not because it, it got freezing cold in, in Alaska. It's because the dock workers went on strike in California. Or there was a, uh, a road washout in Yukon. Or uh, maybe an earthquake in, uh, off the uh, coast of Washington that it impacts but well, it doesn't even have to happen here it happened 9-11 happened you know and for three days the ground is flights everywhere and and everything until so they figured out what had happened and how widespread that that disaster was uh we we don't have to have it happen here for it to impact our ability to to access food and so that's what we want to do is be able to Sidestep those issues now. In the case of coronavirus or bird flu or something like that, you know, if that ever really developed into a, a true pandemic, um, CDC says we expect about three months, ninety days, for a pandemic to run its course. Well, so based on that, my goal is that that Alaska gets to the point where we have about three months supply of food in the state. So that might be food in that may be grain in grain bins or or animals in the feedlot, or on the pasture, or uh, fish uh, that, that is being able to be caught, you know, during that period of time, um, whatever, it doesn't have to be processed on the shelf, it just has to be available to be processed, but, but we got to get to the point where we have that kind of capacity and that kind of reserves crops growing in the field, so that, so that it is available whenever that pandemic happens, or whenever that disaster happens, whether it's three days or whether it's three weeks or whether it's three months. Uh, we just need to be moving toward improving that ability to feed ourselves.
0: That's what we're really missing up here in the agricultural world though, is are those, the co-ops and the, um, and the feedlots, lots, et cetera, where somebody can have an outlet for their product that isn't going directly to a store or to uh, an individual. Does does Delta still have any other? Has Delta gotten rid of all of the co-ops that they have in Delta, or are there still some? know uh, there's co-ops still. Up
1: there? So there, there still is a co-op here. Um, they primarily uh, provide grain drying and fertilizer, fertilizer blending, grain storage, things like that. Um, uh, they, they so they they're a very important part of the agricultural area. Um, but there are other groups of people that are cooperatively working together. Maybe it's not a formal co op, maybe it's an LLC. For example, uh, you know, the, the state of Alaska probably butchers, slaughters uh, 2,500 head of cows a year, 2,500 uh, beef a year. Um, but we want to get to 25,000 animals a year. You know, we'll start there. So that's the first goal, if you will. Let's, let's grow this to 25000 So there's a group of farmers here in Delta that have uh, gone together and, and purchased a, a, slaughter, a slaughter facility in North Pole. And with the, with the idea that now we have a place that we can start slaughtering more animals, and so then that's going to translate to that, that, that creates a place for um, animals that are raised in your backyard or in a feedlot to go. And so you, it has to start somewhere, chicken or the egg thing. You're not going to raise animals and invest in a, in a bunch of animals and cost that way unless you know that you can go get them slaughtered and and move them through the market. And so, you have to pick a point where you start doing that. So now we have the slaughter facility, uh, and we uh, now we're actively trying to uh, encourage people to start raising animals. And you know, I we often talk about feedlots, and you know, feedlots are great um they're they're more efficient uh to do animals in a feedlot, but let's suppose you have a feedlot that has five thousand finishes five five thousand animals a year. Well, what if you have you know twenty five hundred families that each finish two animals a year that's still five thousand animals still five thousand animals that get into the food chain it just didn't happen at one place it happened under twenty five hundred different families and so if we look at it that way, it's really not that hard to get where we want to be if if we just have more people doing it. If well, I, one guy doesn't have to do that. Now we got a whole bunch of people doing it, but we're still accomplishing the the goal of getting more and more animals into the food food stream.
0: and if I remember I, I'm certain that I read it when uh, when the state-run slaughterhouse shifted into private hands they were talking about the number of animals that they were processing in in a given year. And if the animals were available, they could increase their, increase their throughput today, you know, six or seven or eight times. There's just not that many animals available here in the state. So there's a lot of, Mm -hmm. we do have some of that capacity, but we, we've got to figure out a way. So now look at going forward, you have your operation going, you have value added, developed, Now let's talk about somebody that's looking at getting into agriculture and you're getting into agriculture in Alaska. You kind of need to have some form of revenue or some form of loaning capacity, maybe from the state probably available. But how is somebody going to go about growing into that industry? If you were looking at somebody that says, this is something that I want to do, do I go out and and pick up a 4,000-acre lot piece of land if I can find one in Delta and just start planting away or, or where would you give your advice on that?
1: Yeah. Well I'm kind of a cautious guy and uh and I've seen a lot of people over the years come up here with great plans, uh and and a little bit of money and and go under, go out of business. I bought too much, uh didn't do the homework, didn't develop a market, had too had too much risk. Um to learn lessons on, and uh, they're they're here for a few years, a very few years, and then and then they're they're gone. Unfortunately, that's that's what happens. So I'm always more of a kind of a careful guy. So one of the things, if I was a young guy coming in right now, I would come here and I would do something similar to what we did when we first got here. Find a farmer who's got some ground he's not using, and. Uh, most farmers have a little bit of ground that they're not using, a few acres that's not being farmed, and say, "Can I use this?" and and I'll trade you part of my crop, or I'll trade you uh, labor for the use of this, and and some equipment, and just try it out. Get your feet in under, get your feet under you. Uh, kind of learn those lessons on a on a small scale, so that when you when you start scaling up, you've already learned those lessons. You know what you're in for. You know. How to deal with the winter time? You know, you um, uh, know what to do to, to bring your, your yield or your um, your crop in, and and so you, you can do that. And I think a lot of farmers are willing to do that. Um, gosh, we're not getting any younger, and uh, and so that somebody else has got to got to do that. One of the advantages. I know some people would argue with me that the farms here in Delta, in the barley project, are are uh, not be simple title. They're, they're ag covenants, and uh, there's been a lot of discussion about well, we should convert them to fee simple. But I I like the idea of ag covenants because uh, the ag covenants protect that from development. If if all this went to fee simple, then that kind of shoots a hole in our whole argument for for food security because it's it, it's much more make a lot more money off development rights than you would. Raising anything, so like keeping the ground in, in ag covenant, then the only thing you can really do with it is just plant crops and pasture livestock and and do those ag related things. So I think it's important to to keep that. So if and, and so because of that, just a, a farmer like like myself, I get older. I said, man, I want to sell my farm, but I don't have anybody in my family. And some young guys looking around for a place to light and try it out. I'll say, yeah, I got. 200 acres down here and and I've got some equipment that I'm not using now. So yeah, you come and help me with my planting and harvesting. We'll just take the equipment down there. We'll plant your crops and harvest them. Or maybe I've got some ground and, and, uh, and he wants to raise beef or something. I said, man, I'll fence this off and let you raise beef there. And, uh, and then we'll rotate this ground and I'll put crops in where you had your beef next year. And you move your beef over here and, and you fertilize this part now, and go back and forth like that. And there's a lot of ways to kind of help help make that happen
0: without the the large money up front. And if if some, when somebody's listening, yep. they may not have all of the the uh, land terminology straightened out. When you're talking to A covenants, most of the A covenants don't allow you to uh, divide your land into home sites or into commercial development. Sometimes you can divide it. You can subdivide once down to like 40 acre plot, something like that, but you can't do it over and over again. If it were fee simple, some people are going to argue that in a year or two years of, of a uh, tough economic times or, or bad crops, you could take 40 acres, develop 40 home sites, make money off of that. And then, um, and, and then, That would keep the farm afloat. I think if you go down and you look in the lower 48, I don't think that that dreamy ideal is exactly what would happen. Generally, there are developers that are able to come in, purchase the entire thing because there's money to be made. And it's very hard for somebody that's, if you're sitting on a large piece of property and it doesn't look like it's going to stay in the family, it's very difficult to keep that thing uh, to say no, I, I don't want to have this go over to development, and so I think your argument's pretty, yeah, uh, pretty spot on with, with what would actually happen. But I do see, I do see the logic in uh, how Fee Simple could help some uh, farmers, ranchers stay in business in in tough years. So I, I see both sides on that one.
1: Yeah, well, and and I can too. But you don't have to go outside to see what would happen, I and mean, you just look at uh, at the map too. So. You know that farm ground there that was so productive. Most of that's under houses now, and once that's gone, you don't get it back. And so, you know, if if uh, if Alaska has a finite number of acres that are in a suitable climate, suitable soil type for uh, growing crops, for for uh, doing agriculture, then we kind of have to protect that uh, because every 40 acres that gets subdivided is 40 acres less that we. The more that we pull out of the pool, the less available to uh, to grow crops, and so that's kind of where I look at it. Um, I, I recognize I've had I've had farmers say, "Well, I figure that selling this off um, to home sites, this is my retirement." But uh, you know that uh, that doesn't really work because the ag rice ground is purchased for lesser amount than the simple ground to begin with. And so, if you're going to be converting that to be simple, then you're going to have to buy up those development rights somehow. And uh, and and yeah, maybe maybe you can see that as a retirement. But I, I think again, I think that that's a short-sighted way of looking at the big picture, which is how do we how do we help make Alaska more self-sustaining?
0: Well, there's. Uh... The Dunleavy administration right now seems to be very interested in moving land into private ownership. I think some of that is going to, where I think that they're headed is to having another type of Delta project. So you have the bridge over in Inanna that's going to be built. Mm-hmm. Now there's a, there's a significant number of people that look at the Delta project as something that was generally a failure, but uh, there was a really neat article. I'll link to this article on on my website. That said, the Del- don't tell the the Delta farmers that the barley project didn't work, or or however it is. It's an easy thing to pick out and say, yeah. "Oh, this is what didn't work." But you know that the operations in in Delta, there's still a lot of them in operation. So what yeah. would if if we go over and we start doing this over in Nanana, The thing the thing that I was speaking about earlier is. A lot of times competition is something that we're a little bit scared of or you can look at it as somebody eating into your market value. However, for agriculture in this state, the more people that participate, it should drive up uh, some of the demand and some of the outlets and allow more people to get into the industry. It would actually benefit farmers at some stage some level of growth maybe we get 10 or 20% more farmers and therefore the market's more well developed something like that is that is that accurate or mm-hmm. uh
1: yeah i think so um so you you probably wouldn't want to do the nanana development exactly the same as the delta development and the reason is because there there are a different set of resources there um you got a longer season uh than delta does and you're closer to a market Fairbank, a large market fairbanks 50 miles away close to 100 miles away you got access to railroad which delta doesn't have and you have access to a uh to navigable rivers which can get you down into some of the villages and stuff too so there are a different set of um of resources that you can tap into so i would suggest that that we we don't just duplicate delta uh, that we learn from what worked in Delta and what didn't work in Delta, and and then make some modifications. I, I personally think that a, a good mix of different size farms in Nenana would be uh, a positive way to go, so that there were some larger farms for people who are looking to raise, um, you know, crops like like grain and and canola and wheat. Um, wheat is actually a crop that might raise all right in in Nenana, being being slightly. Longer growing season, Um, but uh, but at the same time, you can you can have uh, some smaller acreages for you know raising animals or vegetables, things like that. I I talked to a store owner down in in Anchorage, and he said he would buy every organic carrot that could be raised, and um, and and that would take about uh, for for to meet his. This is one store, one store. Um, I think he, it was going to take about 40 acres, but he wanted it organic. Well, you know, if you can raise it organic, then, then finance. You know, there's a lot of misconceptions about organic, um, how easy it is or how hard it is, and, and people that, that don't know that shouldn't be talking about it. <laughs> but if, it, if it's possible to do it, then, then there's an opportunity for a market right there. With, and uh, let me and I, let me touch
0: on organic real quick one of the things that that gets me with organic is that as the demand for organic grows the one thing that we just have to realize is that organic mm-hmm. in the very beginning was was a neat concept and and i'm i'm not opposed to organic at all and sometimes i i purchase organic sometimes i don't but in the very beginning mm-hmm. it was it was a a new market it was for a specific customer but as customers started buying more and more, you had the the truly dedicated organic farmers, let's say, as as more supply came onto the market, they weren't able to stay afloat necessarily. This is just the logic of it. And so what you develop is the operations that are just barely scraping by as organic. That's what the market is. So it, it actually the growth of organic has actually hurt what was the original ideal of organic in some ways. That just kind of has to be the way that that's played out. I can't tell you that I've looked at a study that shows that, but that's just the way that I see that that had to have played out.
1: I think that for for us up here, there's a couple of things. Again, we talk about what resources do we have. One of the resources we have up here is that our our, our agriculture is, the areas where agriculture is grown is, are widely separated. Uh, and and so w- our soils are, are relatively new. They're they're clean, uh, free of disease. Um, we don't have the weed pressures they have in America. We don't have the insect pressures they have in America. And so those are some strengths that we can build on. And I, I would argue that in many ways, non-organic grown Food up here is probably healthier than organic grown food in America. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And the
1: problem a, is that we yeah. we start competing for um, we the food growers start competing for market, and so in order to do that, you, it's kind of like a political thing where you start bashing the other guys, and, and organic has been bashing uh, conventionally grown for a long time with with some claims that that are not substantiated in fact, and I, I'm of the opinion that. That we need all of that food, so when we talk about feeding 11 billion people by 2050, um, it's going to take everything we can produce, regardless of whether it's grown organically or not organically. And so, I, I'm like you. Uh, sometimes I buy stuff that's organic, but I don't go out of my way looking for it. Um, but but if I see it there and that's what it is, I, I don't mind buying organic. But I'm not afraid to buy non-organic either. Um, I think that that. To, to uh, make the judgment that if you don't support organic, then you're somehow less than human, is is a, a huge failing uh, on the part of people. It's, it's that's like saying if you're not a Republican or not a Democrat, you're less than human. You're you're deplorable or whatever. You know, All right, absolutely. Uh, you can need to allow people to eat what they want to eat and what they can afford to eat, and and don't don't bash them for what their choices are. Nobody's trying to make you do anything Let you know buy what you want and let everybody else buy what they want so that's kind of my philosophy
0: on that so you've been you've been at this for for 40 years now do you think uh, and, and i mean you've alluded to this already but do you think that there's a a future for the new generation or so when you came into it you already you came from a family that was absolutely full of uh, rich agriculture history are mm-hmm. we are we going to be able to grow farmers here in, in the state. I know that there are some operations like the Alaska Flower Company that has generations and, and maybe at some point you're going to have three or four generations on the same operation and it's probably a dream come true. But mm-hmm. are we going to be able to grow farmers, ranchers internally? Are we going to have to ship them in? And, and is there a future in it for, for somebody that's looking at getting into it?
1: Yeah, well, I think I think there's a lot of opportunities. When we when we came up here, uh, one of the things I noticed right away, and again, this is a lot of years ago, um, no matter if you want to do something in Idaho, no matter what you wanted to do, you look around, there's 10 people doing it already. Uh, you come up here and you look around and, and there's nobody doing it. I mean, there's there's so many opportunities. When you talk about 5% or less of our products that we eat being grown here, you know, people say, dang, that's, that's not very much. And I look at it and say, wow, what a market. Yeah, um,
0: what an opportunity. And I,
1: again, back, back to this optimism thing, you know, you, you can see opportunities there because there's so little done. And so I think there's huge opportunities for people who want to do that, but it's not going to be easy. You know, that's, that's a question that I have sometimes in my own mind is, is are we, do we have a generation of kids that are willing to work hard enough to be farmers with the, uh, the, societal changes that have happened over the last 10 years or so, you know, with the internet of things and, and stuff like that. And yeah, it seems like a lot of people are looking for a job in Silicon Valley where they can make a lot of money and wear uh blue jeans to, to work and tennis shoes or whatever, flip flops and, and just live their life, you know, kind of like back in the sixties when we had the, the uh, hippie generation. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Just love everybody and everything will be good. But, Somebody has got to be out there when it's 40 or 50 below feeding cows, but somebody has got to be out there working 18 hours a day to, to put a crop in or to bring a crop out. And and so the question I have sometimes is, is, do we have people, do we have a generation coming up, some of whom are willing to work like that? It's a very rewarding career to be able to work with your kids and work with your grandkids in this be on a farm. I mean, we go out here in the summertime. We walk down the road, you know, the field road here, and it's just quiet, you know, just quiet. I go out into the cover crop field and, and I just, I just hear this constant deep buzz. That whole field is buzzing with bees and flies and things like that, pollinating these flowers and stuff. And I, man, I just love that. I just can't imagine being someplace where that is not, not evident. And so there are trade-offs. Maybe you won't make as much as you do down Silicon Valley but wow what a lifestyle (laughs) do we do we have people coming up who are who are who aspire to that kind of lifestyle want to raise their kids in a place that's healthy that's quiet that's friendly that's um where you work with your hands and you 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 go to you you get up in the morning you go to bed tired but you can't wait to get up again in the morning um man that's there's a few people alike that are like that
0: and there's a piece of it that a lot of people don't don't give this the credit for. Once you get in, if you're doing if you're doing an operation on ten acres or forty acres, you're really committed to uh, what you're going to grow. In many ways, if you're starting to get into a larger operation uh, or when you're beginning, it's a constant battle of trial and error. You talked about Yeah. going through how many different finding your market took you. Twenty years of development before you really had. This is exactly what we're doing, and then another, you know, six, seven, eight years of of dreaming up the Alaska Flower Company, and it's this long process. A lot of times we don't we don't uh, have the ability to look and and work for what what we're going to be uh, handing down, etc. And uh, that's something that agriculture gives gives an opportunity for families to develop that. We have these other opportunities in the state, and the more people that get involved in it, the more uh, the more the market develops, the more that all of these operations help. And another thing that's benefiting is there isn't a lot of large operators, as far as I can tell. Maybe you can tell me I'm wrong, but there isn't a lot of large operators that are coming in and snatching up uh, acreage in Alaska and putting it into mass production, which you, yeah. you see down down in the lower 48 more frequently up here yeah that's another competition you don't necessarily have
1: well there's uh, you know there's there's a size that fits everybody um some depending on what your crop is your resources how much money you got how much land you have or, or can afford um there's no reason that somebody somebody can't do something intensive and still make a living when we first moved up here, there was a uh, lady in town here, and she had, I think, about three-quarters of an acre of garden. She made more money on that three-quarters of an acre of garden selling it at the farmer's market than, than we made uh, on our farm. Uh, so so those kind of things can be done. So what if, you know, if you don't have – maybe you're one guy. Maybe you even have to work a job. But, uh, but you got your Saturdays off, and you want to do a farmer's market, plant it half an acre of vegetables and, and harvest them and take them in there and sell them on the Saturdays and 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 get started doing that. Uh, if you don't have a lot of pasture ground for animals, but you want to get into something like that, get a hog and ferrower and raise babies and sell them as wiener pigs to somebody else who's going to fatten them and, and put them on the plate. Uh, same with cattle. You don't have to have a feedlot to, to still be involved. And, and you get started in that, then a lot of times growth will kind of occur naturally. You, you, uh, you figure things out. Uh, maybe now you've got a heifer that gets born and, and she's looking like a she'd be a good cow. So you save her instead of sell her and you breed her. And now you've got two cows. So growth a lot of times can happen naturally. And, and we don't have to make that happen. It's like you, you watch a sitcom and all the problems uh, get solved in half an hour. Well, that doesn't happen with agriculture, like what you said. You have to kind of look, take the long look at things. But but communities that that have agricultural bases are more stable than communities that are not. And the reason is because it's not as easy to just pick up and and go get another job and leave everything, because you're you're tied to the land. you and so you you work harder. You develop that community. You you get on the school board. You send your kids to school you get involved in church you you do those things that make a community a community that's because you're there for the long haul
0: yeah no that's that's absolutely a great point i live i you know i'm i'm living operating in bristol bay there's extremely high turnover it's it's hard for somebody to set down roots In, in dillingham there's a population of people that that you know have been born and raised in Dillingham, but people just flow in and out, in and out. And you face a little bit of that with Delta because you've got the military base and stuff. But as far as the agriculture yeah. base, that is that is really an anchor and probably probably the the heart of the community. Another opportunity, as we wrap it up, another thing that I see with agriculture in the state, when you have the Alaska Flower Company and you're producing something that somebody, you know, a value-added product, tourism is growing and it, mm-hmm. it won't be so long before... Yeah. The tourists or the the consumers say, look, I want to have this product. They don't want to get onto a cruise ship in Alaska to have Bisquick. You know, they're looking looking for, and this is a market for more people, uh, opportunity, restaurants and chefs and other people are looking for somebody to supply it. But it is going to take a lot of work for us to go and cultivate it.
1: Yeah, and that's something that uh, that we can help each other do. You know, for example, uh, we've got couscous products that pair really well with crab or, or salmon. And, and uh, so working together, we can help each other develop those markets in the cruise ships, uh, in the uh, tourism industry. And then, too, there's, there's the the agritourism, which has really taken off in America. And we started into that a little bit. We have uh, several tours a year coming through uh, on buses, and and they they call us up and say, we got this many buses coming up this summer. Can you do these days? And we like that opportunity to show what we're doing and build, you know, not only build markets because they all buy stuff, and and they'll order stuff when they get home, and then we ship it down to America. they ordered order it online. So we, we build that market there, but we're, we're spreading the word that, that Alaska is open for business. These are healthy products. They're good products. And, uh, and it, a lot of them will buy stuff for, um, souvenirs. You know, it's not something that you're going to set up on the shelf and let it collect dust and then until it falls off and breaks or something it's something, you're going to go home and you're going to eat. And every time you eat that, you're going to say, dang, that was a fun
0: trip. <laughs> well, I, I can tell you right now, for, for Christmas or for any of these other things, I'm going to add some of your products to send down because I love to grab Alaska-grown products to grab something like that. Of course, we do uh, salmon. We do other, other items like that. Grab some, some of your mm-hmm. product, put it into the basket. We always send our jams and stuff that we make. And people appreciate that during the gift time. And, um, yeah, I I think, I I just think it's it's great to, to be able to buy something that was grown here. I'm sitting here. I'm talking to you from Bristol Bay to Delta Junction. We're in the state and there's a, there's a special thing about the state of Alaska, some of the community that we have developed. So people should, should go out and make sure that they're supporting these industries so we can grow it and increase our food security. Um, Bryce, I really appreciate, uh, talking to you. I, I enjoy everything that you are doing hopefully after the harvest maybe this fall i'll talk to you again maybe sooner um, and just check in frequently with the alaska flower company see how you're how you're developing and and i know that there's a giant interest in people that want to talk to somebody or at least listen to somebody who's been successful in the industry because there's a lot of people that have the the dream of doing what you do they may not as i like to say they may they may want to do what you do, but they may not want to have to do what you did to do what you do. <laughs> so there's, there's, yeah. Yeah. There, there's yeah. those two things that, that go hand in hand, but a lot of people are interested in agriculture, particularly, particularly in Alaska, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's one thing I wanted to just touch because we talked briefly about, it, and that was the organic stuff. I wanted to kind of just uh, clarify, I'm, I'm not opposed to people raising organic stuff one of the challenges with organic up here is, is it has to be certified in order to be truly organic. And, and there is not an organic certifier up here. And so what people do, if they're, if they're interested in organic, somebody wants to raise organic vegetables or organic grain or whatever, um, what they do is, is they will raise them as close to using organic practices as they can. Uh, if, if the soil is not, it doesn't have enough nutrients, right? Nutrients, and and there's no other way to do that. Maybe they'll they will put some fertilizer on it. Uh, nitrogen is nitrogen, whether it's in the air, or whether it's it's in urea. Nitrogen is still nitrogen. This is an element, you know. Uh, same as phosphorus and same as potash. These these are all sulfur. These are all just elements. Whether you get them out of a out of a crop or whether you get them out of a uh, animal manure or whether you pull it out of the air. The important thing is that. If, if you're into organic and you want to try and raise organic because you believe that it's healthier, then just raise it as as close to organic growing principles as you can. And then just let people know. Don't, don't try and pawn it off as organic. Just let them know this was raised as close to organic as we can do it. I'm
0: gonna, and uh, and
1: that's what I was trying to point out when I said that, you know, if it's raised in Alaska, it's coming out of clean soil and a clean place is probably healthier than organic raised in america
0: well the soil the soils are fundamentally different up here because they haven't been tilled and processed for 100 and 150 years etc that's what that's what i believe to be true that's what what you're saying here there's no reason for me to doubt that when Mm -hmm. you talk about the organic I, i may bother some of the beekeepers in the state i did spend a lot of a lot of time 10 years beekeeping there there are a lot of people that but organic on their honey, and there's just there's no way to certify where, how how your yeah how your where your honey's. So if you're buying organic honey, just to let you know, it's it's not certified organic. Be, bees are gonna go from yeah the high it, to it, two it, it's miles. not coming
1: up through the store. And, <laughs> yeah, it's yep, not going up through the store. It's not certified organic.
0: Right, and it's it, you know it's it's nearly impossible to know where you, you're. Bees may have gone and gotten into something over here or there or there, but, you know, that's that's just one of the examples about the organic industry. Somebody may be able to put a label yeah. on there in a very rare case, but it doesn't make the product, especially in honey, that's what I know of, doesn't make the product any different uh, or certified organic or not. Mm-hmm. But, well... Again, I hope that you'll come back and do this more oh, frequently, yeah, so that we can you. so that we can know. check in a lot because I have such such an interest in in the agriculture, and I'm I'm excited to see because I just got this gut feeling that we're we're on the verge of maybe moving towards trying to entice more people into agriculture. The state's going to have to make an investment mm-hmm. in 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 the right support for those people. But it's going to be people like you mm-hmm. that are going to have to lead some of that stuff, as far as setting the example um, and sharing your knowledge. So I'm glad that you were that, that you took the time to talk with me today on that.
1: Yeah, you know that's a, that, all of us got to do that. Uh, I, I can't imagine anybody wanting to see somebody fail at agriculture. And what what would how how narrow minded would your life be if that's yeah. what you wanted? So you, in order to make that happen, you, you got to kind of share. Some lessons. They still make decisions. You can't help that. But but if they're just looking for knowledge and are willing to listen, and I think I think most farmers are willing to help them figure that out and share what they've learned. And and I appreciate I appreciate the people who've shown me and, and taught me. And uh, and I I take every opportunity I can to share my knowledge with somebody else. Uh, I just think that's kind of what we owe each other.
0: Well. Thanks. Thanks a bunch, Bryce. I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you soon. And once again, Alaska Flower Company, buy their product if you see it or go and ask for it. Go to the website. You can you can get it at most of the stores that we have here. And I'll talk to you soon, Bryce.
1: Thanks, Casey. You have a great night.